Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, Where Incarnate Memories Prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Hey, everyone in the imp world, what's going on? Welcome back. I have none other than Tony, the doctor, Tony Irving with us today. Everyone has been super fired up. Tony, what's going on? It's a Monday in Charlottesville. What could be better? Not much could be better. Charlottesville is where we all aspire to move back to, right? So this is, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today. We've been hanging out on the uh, Imp Zooms the last couple of months, and I knew you would be an awesome guest. So I'm just going to jump right in. So tell me about it. I know you grew up in Philadelphia, then you had a a detour to Chicago. Uh, You were in Charlottesville, but I want to hear, tell me about high school and how it led up to Virginia. You know, so I went to, um, I grew up right outside of Philadelphia in a suburb called Springfield Township, and um, which introduced a lot of connections, but um, there were a bunch of people who ended up going to UVA, and I remember coming down in uh, senior year, and they had this thing called like Fall Flynn, and I hadn't even filled out my application, but after the tour and meeting with students, I was just on fire. We got this Dean Blackburn speech, you know, about coming, not because everything's perfect, but if you're ready to make a difference and change things. And I was like totally indoctrinated after that. There was nowhere else I was going to college. And as a matter of fact, UVA is the only school I applied to. Wow, that's awesome. The only school. That's like very like athlete. Right. An athlete would do that. They would pick their one school and then they would apply. I remember when I knew I was going to Virginia, uh, the soccer coach said, don't spend a lot of time on the application because we've already pre-approved you. And so I didn't. I remember back then my father had to take the application into his office and have someone type it up for him. And when he looked at my essay, he came in and he said, you write on a third grade writing level. This is horrific. I'm not letting someone in my office see this. Go back and do it again. So I only applied to one school, but I feel like the amount of times that I had to do revisions, it was like I applied to five. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the funny thing is, I remember that I filled out the application by hand. Like, I didn't even, you know what I mean? Like, my mom's a fourth grade teacher. There was no sending it in for someone else to type it up for me. I just wrote that company out by hand. And we're going to get into this later, but uh, not only was it good enough to get into Virginia, obviously it's good enough to teach at Virginia too. Apparently they'll let anyone teach you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's awesome. So hop in, you get to the university grounds the first day. Where was your dorm? Give me the whole scoop. Yeah, so one thing I do have to say as a sidebar is that my senior year chemistry teacher at, in high school, who was awesome, but I'm in a UVA, and I'm like, 
I'm a major in English. What do I need chemistry for? And, um, and so like I withdrew halfway through, but that was Mrs. Green, Amy Green's mother. Shut up. And okay. And to, to pull this world full circle, I've been emailing with Amy the last couple of weeks after the first episode came out and she's going to be on our show. So that's awesome. And she, she claims to be an introvert and we all know that she's not an introvert. So we're going to get it out of her. I know I talked to her a few, like maybe a month or so ago, but anyway, so yeah, so I get to UVA, I'm at Kent dorm and um, old dorms rule. They actually just got a H back now I hear. So imagine that some AC in there. And I, don't know, I was just sort of like wandering about, I think for a minute there, I thought I was going to do pre-com. Um, and then I got into stats and I can remember about three or four weeks into stats, looking up and going, what the heck is going on? <laughs> not doing this i was like i got my withdrawal passing and rolled um but yeah so then i decided to major in english because i just love literature and reading and all of that and um and my mom was like what do you think you're going to do with an english degree how do you think you're going to feed yourself whatever and so i ended up getting internships in the summer through this program called inroads where i was working at a bank uh, so it was the balancing out so that I could enjoy my life. My mom was like, you don't have a trust fund. People with trust funds major in English. So, so that's how that went. But remember, I mean, my memory is so bad, and that's why it's so good to run into so many people so they can fill it in for me and tell me what I was up to. But I know I joined the BSA pretty quickly, and, um, and that's where I met Darius Withers um, and Jerry Bias and just a crew of people through that. And I'm like, I'm like, I forgot first year. I don't even know what else happened. Well, I can tell you why you can't remember, but that's a story for that's that's more of a PG podcast that uh, we've got going on here. So we'll leave that one to everyone's imagination. And so what was the road to the imps? How did that play out? I was involved in a bunch of things and, um, and, you know, from BSA and Alpha Kappa Psi and business fraternity and my Madison house and a range of things. And so, you know, this imp thing wasn't something I was paying attention to at all. And um, I got tapped and I just remember how cool everyone was, like how pleased I was to have such a broader set of experiences through these people um, that I was spending all of this quality time with, right? And so um, I remember the marches really well and how much fun it would be just to be, you know, slamming back drinks and stomping down the streets and, you know, devil horns and a pitchfork. I, I only got rid of my pitchfork maybe uh, three moves ago. <laughs> Well, well, it's funny that you say that because I was trying to explain this to my 14-year-old daughter the other day, and it was coming out of my mouth, and it, I'm saying to myself, so I was wearing horns, devil horns, with a pitchfork, going and drinking, and no matter how I tried to change the narrative of how these marches went, it just didn't seem to like resonate with her. And I started to say, okay, I need to switch the topic quickly. So yeah, those were super fun, super fun and hard to explain how much fun they were. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and just, I think also, um, you know, those Sunday nights, I remember those and just the, the sort of um, contrast of content and context, 
you know, where we were meeting versus what we were doing. That was always, you know, so much fun to sort of think through. Um, and I think I took the imp thing, you know, I have always been an imp at heart. And I think I just took it too much to heart once I became officially an imp because I also remember one year figuring out um, all of the alumni groups have their mailing lists, right? With alumni affairs. And, you know, for most groups, they're just under whatever the name of the group is. But for some of the secret groups, they're under different names. And so I figured out somehow what the Zoomers are under. And, um, and I ordered the mailing list. They gave it to me. And then, like, I prank mailed out things to Zoomers. And I remember getting a call on my voicemail from Ernie Earn, like, Miss Irving, bring the list back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And there's a lesson in there as well that I want to come back to. I also remember us once doing a run on a Zoomer meeting. And I will never forget bursting into this room where they were meeting. And they were eating like animal crackers and sipping from juice boxes. And I was like, I don't want to be a Zoomer. <laughs> How freaking ridiculous are these people? So anyway, so it was just, um, right, a, a super fun time. And I think it just helps you understand, A, what your limits are, two, what community means, um, and then three, what's possible within the realm of community, right? Yeah, there's probably a little bit of gratitude in there, gratitude that you aren't a Zoomer. Thank God. It's further proof that some people have it worse than we do, right? Exactly. I mean, what could be worse than being a Zoomer? Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. So, okay, great. So then what are, what are some other stories that you remember from the university? It could be imp stories or non-imp stories. Just give me one or two. So, so one of the, um, you know, so, so many wonderful people again, but um, for some reason, I just, Adam, Arthur, and I just sort of connected. And, um, you know, I think for me, he was my token barefoot redneck. You know, I just, you know, I'm from a city, you know? I don't know any, you know, hillbillies, right? And so I was just like, this is so interesting. He can read, he can speak, um, you know? And so I was just like, I felt sort of anthropological about it. And I thought, God, I really do want to understand him in his habitat. And, um, but then he was living on the lawn. My dear friend <laughs> to the day, but he cracked me up, you know. And so, um, so funny enough, I actually used our yearbook. Um, so Adam, you know, I had this 8 a.m. class. I'm like the only fourth year with an 8 a.m. class, and um, I don't even remember what it was, but it sucked. And so I would need a nap, and I lived off ground. I lived on Rugby Road, and so I would, um, you know, Adam, of course, always left his door open. And so sometimes I would go catch a nap in Adam's room after my class, before my next class. And um, I remember the yearbook people just like open the door one day and take a picture. And it's like for the yearbook. And I don't know if they thought that I lived there or not, but I end up in the yearbook napping in Adam's bed, which was generally speaking, not a good look. Scandalous. I love it. And, and, and the other thing I know about um, Adam is that I don't even know. I must have been so exhausted because Adam, in the entire year that he lived there, never washed his comforter. Wow. 
Why am I not surprised? Why, well, I'm not surprised at all about that. He, in fact, I, uh, I will interview Adam too, just to rebut that. But I think maybe I'll do a pre-interview with his family to see if he still doesn't wash his comforter. See? Yeah, I think that um, he probably has a little help at the house now to sort of mediate that, right? So, yeah. So uh, do you remember how you were tapped? Do you, do you recall that at all? Tyrell Simpson, um, and I forget who was with him, but because I was in the BSA and Jerry Bias was the chair of the BSA, I think Tyrone came and said that Jerry had been in some dramatic car accident. And um, but, you know, I just remember in the back of my mind thinking, well, who would have told Tyrone if that was the case? Right. <laughs> because I didn't really believe it, but then I was like, well, why is he here? Um, so yeah, so I remember that, but I also remember like the, the day of our initiation um, and the tuna. And, you know, I'm a small person and I can only handle so much alcohol at once, especially without having dinner. And I can just remember wanting to go hide somewhere because of the, you know, like just how much was being compelled to drink in that process. And I was just like, oh my God, but I still have super fond memories. And I actually, for Thanksgiving every year, make a sort of modern tuna for my family. Wow. That's a first on our show that someone's keeping it alive with such an important holiday too. So yeah. do you sense now that you're back in Charlottesville and we'll talk about that later, do you have a, uh, a hankering to go on one of the marches with the group or not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's been so tough about, I mean, it's been wonderful to be in Charlottesville, but you know, I've been here do, just during the pandemic and, um, and it's weird to be back, and, and I was so excited to do all of these sort of undergrad things and kind of have a relive for a few months. But, you know, there are no football games, you know, that you can really go to, and there's none of this tapping. And then Alderman Library is closed, and sort of like, you know, I wanted to go catch a nap in Alderman Library, right? Like, oh, all the things we used to do. And, um, and so none of that is happening now. But it's still nice to go um, just to be on ground and, and now that I'm a grown-up, and it really is interesting to be a grown-up because um, one of my friends is uh, living in one of the pavilions. He's a faculty member. And so, like, now I'm sitting on the patio, you know, like the terrace at a pavilion drinking, looking down at those little people down there, you know, having their fun. And I feel like I'm having a better time. That's awesome. You know, uh, we'll come back to a couple of other stories, but I want to just kind of finish the timeline a little bit, though. So th the name of the show is From Nowhere to Now Here. So you started Now Here. I think you went to the evil side and you were working at a bank. Is that right? Right out of college? That was, yeah, that was super. So, so when I finished UVA, um, I took the summer off and I traveled through East Africa. And then I started a job as a financial analyst at um at a wholesale bank and um, you know all the banks merged so at the time it was philadelphia national bank and it's been bought so many times but it's implicitly wells fargo and uh, and i did that for two years and it was a bank training program and part of it was just to prove like i'm an english major you know but i can do whatever i can price a bond i can whatever i mean i don't wanna but i will uh, and I think it's a good thing to just make sure that you know in your heart that you can pull off what you have, whatever you need to do. So I did it for two years. Um, I really wanted to be back in Philadelphia with my family. My grandmother was very old and I wanted to spend quality time with her. And then my grandmother passed away in March 
of, uh, you know, two years in. I'm, I'm sort of vague about the years because I'm pretending I'm 35 still. But my grandmother passed away, and then like, you know, life is short. It's like, you know, because you're training, like, you need to make money. You need to do certain things. And I was like, but what makes me happy? And, and I wasn't sure. But what I did know is that I majored in English for a reason. I really did love literature. And as a matter of fact, I had been in this, um, you know, sort of whatever, honors English program um, where there were, like, 12 people in uh, UVA. And everyone was going off to graduate school. And I remember my advisor um, at UVA saying, everyone's asked for their grad school letters of recommendation. Why haven't you asked? And I was like, I'm not trying to take the vow. Um, and so I was like, forget this, you know, English stuff. So, but after the two years, I was like, you know what? I do need to have a better kind of thoughtful experience in life. And so I, I quit my job. Um, I applied for grad school. I ended up getting a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship. And I went to England for a year um, and did my MA, which was super fun. Um, and then I came back and I did a PhD at NYU. And oddly enough, you know, I don't even think I knew where South Bend, Indiana was. Um, but I got recruited um, in my first job out of the doctoral program by Notre Dame. And I only went to the interview because, you know, my advisor was like, it's Notre Dame, you have to go. And I was just like, huh? And, um, and then I realized that it was an hour and 20 minutes by car from Chicago. And I always had this kind of hankering about Chicago. Um, and so I took the post at Notre Dame. Um, I lived in Chicago in Hyde Park in the U Chicago neighborhood. And, you know, you teach twice a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays. So seven months a year, I was commuting down there an hour and 20 minutes each way. And it was awesome. Um, to have the best of both worlds, right? And so I did that for, for quite some time. But then I had another moment where I was like, is this, is that all there is, right? <laughs> I feel like Bette Midler. Um, and so I wanted to do more that was actively engaged in the world. You're teaching these super bright, privileged kids, right? Everyone's driving BMWs and Range Rovers. And um, they've all got internships at CBS and Goldman. And, you know, you're teaching seminars, 20 kids, you know, in a seminar to each semester, 80 kids a year. And you're like, yes, I am influencing future leaders. But the world just has profound needs. And, and is this enough? And so um, that was right about the time that Barack Obama was uh, became president. And I had an odd, I knew, I know about Barack Obama, which is an odd, you know, Chicago kind of thing. And um, he and I had the same personal trainer at the gym. Uh, actually, my Barack Obama story is a good one. So I'll tell you quickly. It's funny. Um, so we're going to this gym and, um, you know, I don't talk to anybody at the gym. And one day I'm in Pal's bookstore and I see on the $2 bin this book and the guy on the cover of it looks like this guy at the gym. And so it's like two bucks. So I buy it and, and I'd never spoken to the guy. And so the next day I go to the gym and I walk up to him and I go, is this you? And it's dreams of my father. And this guy is just a little state rep, right? Um, and so he's like, oh my God, where'd you find that relic? Blah, blah, blah. And we chat. And he was teaching constitutional law at um, U Chicago. And I was teaching law and literature um, at Notre Dame. And so we, you know, we just became friends. And I had him sign my book because as academics, you always ask someone to sign your book, right? So it's kind of cool now that I have, you know, this sort of $2 dreams of my father, you know, signed by Barack Obama. So that was that. So I thought, you know, it's Camelot now, right? I'll go and do that work. And I, in the process of interviewing, I ended up meeting the new governor of Illinois, 
our governor Blagojevich got impeached and I got recruited to come on board and it was just like a way better job. Right. So, so I ended up leaving Notre Dame to become deputy chief of staff to the governor of Illinois, which was an awesome experience. Um, and I did that for four years and I left there and um, ran a social impact fund in Chicago. It was really a philanthropic fund to fund a bunch of corporations pooled their dollars, you know, sort of pre ESG to think about how they could have a real direct impact on some key issues going on in the community. Um, and so that was awesome. And I did that for a good six, seven years. And then I came here. So that's amazing. Would, did you have maybe some thoughts that maybe you wanted to go deeper into politics at that point? Or was, did you know that that was just a pit stop? Yeah, you know, I, I had no idea what a deputy chief of staff was when the governor <laughs> offered me the job. You know, I was just kind of like, what? And when I got there, I was so pumped up. It was like the best high ever. It's the fifth largest state. We've got 13 million people. And you can make decisions in a day that impacts millions of people just because I decided to do it today, right? And it's huge. But, you know, Chicago is so mafioso and there are so many other kinds of issues. All politics are local. There's so much horse trading. There's so much, you know, shadiness in general. And it's one of those things where I feel like um, government service should sort of be like the Peace Corps, where I think that really everyone should do it you know, for maybe three years. They need super bright people, but obviously economically you're not going to win. But I have an $8 billion portfolio, an English professor, right? And so I literally had this $8 billion budget every year to teeter with. I remember the first time even, you know, just trying to decide what to do between the capital bill and revenue. Anyway, so you get this huge amount of responsibility. I feel like I could run any company in this country, right? Because of this situation. I'm dealing with labor. I'm doing massive amounts of operations, you know, federal logistics, regulation. Like, there's so many pieces. I mean, I, I was part of the deal to privatize the lottery. You know what I mean? And so it's like you get all of these amazing kinds of experiences, but you then have to have the energy to deal with the dark side. And, and that's really what did it for me. I think for the first two and a half years, you couldn't tell me. And I was working seven days a week around the clock. You know, you, you, you finish the day, you go to a rubber chicken dinner. You know, Sunday morning, you're meeting the governor on the steps of a church at 7 a.m. You know, so it's nonstop. It's like, so you can't, it's not sustainable as far as I'm concerned. And like I said, there are other pieces to it that make it less desirable. So I feel like I did my time, Right. Um, I'm really proud of it and pleased with it, but I will never go back. Well, it was funny because when you were telling the positive side to it, I was thinking to myself, why didn't she stay in that? She's unbelievably passionate about it. But then you used the, the term dark side, right? And then all of a sudden there was that other piece. Any like specific memories of the dark side where you said, okay, I'm like done with this? I mean, there's so many, you know what I mean? But I can remember sitting in a leaders meeting. And so the, you know, the four leaders, you know, the House minority, majority, Senate minority, majority, and the governor would meet on a regular basis. And a few staffers would get to sit in on that, which is gold. And so that's when they're doing all the negotiations about everything relative to the budget and policy and whatever. And I remember that there were a group of legislators who wanted something in particular, and it was a possibility. It was on the table. It's like, you know, let's say there's 
$50 million. You have $100 million worth of asks. You have to decide which ones you're going to let go of and which ones you're going to keep. And so the speaker was like, forget that one. You know what I mean? Like, that's not my priority, right? And he picked what he picked. And I'm sitting right there. So then the, that constituent says to him afterwards, what about our thing? And he was like, couldn't get it. The governor this, you know, whatever. And he goes through this whole sort of scenario. And they're suspicious. And um, this is all I learned later. The speaker calls me and another staffer into the office without telling us. We get there. These people are there. And he goes, explain to them why the governor couldn't give them what they want. Wow. So how did you handle that? I mean, me and this other person just looked at each other and we were like, no, what? right? Like, like, right. And this is the speaker. And, you know, this speaker is a famous speaker has been in the seat for whatever. And so, you know, there's a lot that legislators don't understand about the budget, about what's allocated versus appropriated. Or, you know what I mean? So. So there was like a, I basically, it was like a poem. I was like, and this and that and this and that, you know? And um, and I just remember feeling absolutely sick to my stomach, you know? It's like, if I had known, I just wouldn't have come to the office, you know what I mean? But like, I was there in the seat and I would have had to call the speaker a liar and be right out of town, right? So I just remember like, this is just what's normal, um, you know what I mean, in these parts. And I'm not going to be subject to that sort of situation. Like, And so later on, you know, I, I started making it my business to help legislators understand the budget, understand the bills. They just don't have the staffing to know that eight pages in, in the third paragraph's footnote, it undoes what happened in the second paragraph. And so I think that for me, it's always been like I try to root for the underdog and figure out how I can help people navigate the world better when I know, you know, more than than they do in that situation. Yeah, that uh, that dog doesn't hunt, as they say, for Tony Irving, that as soon as you started to experience that, I would imagine you were uh, one foot out the door, as they say. That's just not your way, uh, not how you roll. So then, okay, so that ended. Right. And you went, uh, then there was one more stop before Charlottesville too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then I got recruited to run this fund and, um, which was actually more political than I thought it would be, but it was super in that. I mean, this is still an issue where, um, you know, I think in the environment of pension reform, there's just far fewer dollars from states to go to things that are important, like social safety nets, et cetera. And so it's a great opportunity even now for more public-private partnerships to think about how can you sort of bring your value add to a situation and improve it. And so one of the factors around government is that in the budget cuts, the first things to go are the research, the analysts, the assessors. Um, and that's a strong point for corporations. And so my job was really a bunch of companies, Boeing, J.P. Morgan, Allstate, Guggenheim, um, Grosvenor, McDonald's, Walgreens, they came together and they were like, what can be our value add around some pretty pressing issues? And one in particular is at-risk youth. Chicago had become the poster child for youth violence and, um, you know, in issues around poverty. And so I started to just do a real assessment about what kinds of services were in play, how um, meaningful were they and impactful, were we seeing an ROI? Because it's frustrating for me as someone who gave up hundreds of millions of dollars to then not be an ROI, 
And it's not gonna be good for the people long-term if we can't report that. And so a lot of it was also um, unexpectedly about building capacity of community-based organizations so that they could have the infrastructure to collect data and be able to do a better job of reporting out what they were doing. So one, that was a, a clear value add for corporations. Let's come in and help them build this capacity so that they're in a better position to both understand their impact and report it out. Philanthropy um, was largely focused on programs and they weren't funding operations. They weren't funding these underlying systems. And so in the same way that people know that they've got deferred maintenance on their house, I would say that we had deferred capacity in, um, in the nonprofit space across the nation. And so very little, very few organizations were even doing basic things like say taking attendance. And so if you don't take attendance and little Johnny's life is better, you don't know if little Johnny came one time to your program or 20 times. So if Johnny's better, is it because of you or is it because Johnny's mom has a new boyfriend who plays football with him, right? And so people think that data, sometimes these organizations would think that data was this sort of like academic downtown, making up things that complicate our lives. And so part of even my job was even just to break it down like that about sort of like, this sounds kind of involved, this database, this collection system and the terms that people use, but this is what this means. And so, you know, it was, it's again, all the work that I do, I'm passionate about. And it's something that was super important to me to get down into the weeds to understand what was really going on. Because, you know, you, you go to these rubber chicken luncheons, people trout out some kid, they tell a sob story, and everybody writes their check. But that might be the reality of that kid, but is it at scale for all the young people who have gone through that program? Is that the experience universal? And of the, all the components that they're making use of, do they equally contribute to that outcome? Are some of them not really you know, carrying their weight and the value of it? How do you understand how to best use your resources, apply them and get these pieces? And so, you know, in this time where we don't have, you know, just unlimited resources to throw at a problem, it's just increasingly important for people to understand how their money is working for them. Um, so, so that's something, and, you know, I'll say that, you know, and we had all these, so Exelon CEO, Chris Crane was on my board and they immediately went about, you know, you've been given to things that I care about, theater, symphony, you know, et cetera. But they were like, we want to see better impact in a specific way. If we spread ourselves across 20 different, you know, vectors, how do we know what we're changing? And so they really doubled down in specific youth serving areas as a result of being part of this collaborative. The same thing with Allstate, Tom Wilson, the CEO of Allstate was the chair of my board. Um, and so I had some really amazing CEOs in the, you know what I mean? Like we're just like you are, not we are. We're sitting around with a drink or, or you know, playing golf or having coffee and, and just trying to figure some things out. And so it's a perfect segue now to being back at a business school, and especially being an exec ed, because I'm really into corporate strategy. I love to think, you know, I think I've been spoiled where, you know, I love to talk to CEOs about what their issues are and help them sort of solve their problems. And, you know, not just around their philanthropic or their social, but how it connects to their people, how it connects to their policy, how it connects to community engagement and government affairs. And, and so um, all of that's exciting and fun for me. And I enjoy um, both in terms of helping leaders in exec ed and in training future leaders in the residential MBA. Well, I, I bet you probably had a number of very proud moments in that stint of your career where you just 
went and you did something or you helped facilitate something or facilitated an introduction that all of a sudden had a wow moment. Any like big proud moments that you remember off the top of your head where you, you walked away and, you're, and you said, yeah, I helped do that. That's awesome. Yeah, no, there are a bunch of those, but I'll tell you that just the most recent one is that um, one of the things I should have sucked out is that, um, you know, high risk youth have multiple issues and they might get served here by this group and then here by this group. And none of the groups know that they're working with the same kid, right? And they could be doing duplicate or what have you. So I put together in assessing a care coordination program and I ran it out as a pilot. I paid for it, et cetera. And I was like, we need to do this citywide. And, um, and I talked to, you know, the city human services, probation, a bunch of people. And, you know, I left, you know, over a year ago and just like three months ago, they launched and announced that they're launching citywide my care coordination program. So this thing that I personally conceived of, tested out and then, you know, advocated for is, I mean, so somebody just sent me like three days ago, their deck on it. And it's all my flood, you know? Um, and so that's huge, right? Like the implications for that across the board, you know, this is a sort of um, several hundred million dollar effort um, in the city of Chicago that I actually think should happen in Newark as well and in Houston and some other places. And hopefully getting this off the ground will lead to that. So yeah, I'm super proud of it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I imagine probably in that position, you probably got asked to speak a lot of these venues that you were mentioning, the dinners, the, the rubber chicken dinners. Were you speak doing a lot of public speaking at this point too? Well, yes, I spoke a lot. I wrote a lot. I talked to the media a lot. And I um, mean, it's good to help think about really complicated issues, especially around, like I said, research and help break them down for the daily practitioners to understand how it applies to them. Because if people don't believe in and adopt these things, then it won't matter how smart you are or how good it works or what the evidence suggests. So, okay, you're making a difference in this last stint in your career and you get sucked into teaching again. You couldn't leave it alone. I understand the Charlottesville grab. I understand the why. So tell us what, what happened there. Um, it's funny because I, I was listening to Ross and you talk uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think this whole thing about sort of what do I want to be when I grow up, it's such a journey and not a destination. And I 100% believe in um, being in the moment. And, um, and probably, I mean, maybe every four years for the rest of my life, I'm going to want to do something different, right? And so to me, this was like the perfect opportunity to um, bring together all the things that I love. And so obviously I'm historically an academic, but then I also have been doing this public policy work. And then I've also been doing a lot of corporate strategy, um, you know, especially around ESG. And so what was so enticing about coming um, back to UVA, which isn't really coming back to UVA because I'm at Darden, right? And I, you know, I wasn't there and at North Grand, it's, it's a bit of a different world. But um, we have an opportunity to really build up a strong program and exact ad around ESG. Um, and we also have a great opportunity to build up a strong program around nonprofit management. And these are two things that I'm an expert in. And Hartford has really been owning nonprofit management for quite some time. And 
People have been flying from all over the country. And UVA now, we, Garden, we have this new campus in Roslyn. You know, DC is our literal backyard. And, um, and we need to own that, right? And so why should Harvard have all the fun? So I'm pumped up about um, building up those two areas, ESG and nonprofit management, and then really making us a center for the kinds of cross-sector partnerships that are going to be at the backbone of strong mission-driven um, environmental, social, and governance initiatives going forward, um, and just how companies think about the, the larger stakeholders um, in their world. And I think I'm a pragmatist, and I would say that a lot of the ESG you know, discussion is, is kind of bogus, right? It's like people want to see these things. People are making up narratives to support them because it's expected of them. And there's a reason why. It's because it's been made cumbersome for them. There's diff difficulty in finding common metrics, you know, and there's a whole range of reasons. And so rather than put people in a position where they need to fake it, I would rather help them come to processes that work for them without being onerous, right? And so I feel like we can have these conversations with CEOs like, look, you don't need to give us the thing you gave everyone else. We know that that's bogus. You can't even track three years in a row the same metrics in your own annual reports. So, you know what I mean? Um, so let's help you with that to begin with, right? Let's help you tell a consistent story with common indicators along the way that actually makes sense to you in your mission and things that you can follow through on because they fit. It's like, you know, somebody telling me that, you know, to really get in shape, I need to be in this program that means working out at 5 a.m. That's not going to happen. I don't care how great the thing is, right? And so, you know what I mean? So let's just make it easier for you. So, um, so anyway, so that's sort of how I ended up here. And I mean, who knows how long I'll be here, but I love it. And I love that we are um, both in Charlottesville and in D.C. Because as much as I love Charlottesville, you know, I am still a city person. I went from, you know, Philadelphia to New York to Chicago. So, you know, it's this balancing out. It's kind of uh, kind of a scenario that was uh, built for you, right? To, uh, they say uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You kind of are. I really think I am. I'm both having my academic cake and my corporate cake. I'm having my intellectual cake and my practitioner cake. I'm having my hiking nature Charlottesville cake and my museums, restaurants, city cake. Um, and you know what I think that, you know, I'll, I'll say to bring it full circle is I think that UVA taught me that UVA taught me more than anything else or anywhere else I've been in the world, um, that I that it was mine for the taking and the making. Right. And, um, and I didn't know that before I came here. So it's awesome. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to ask you this next question because it's uh, you have a completely different perspective than most of our other guests will have. And it's about what would you tell a UVA student or and let's make it specific, a UVA imp student, since this is an imp podcast. What words of wisdom would you give them? And the irony to it is that you're doing this every day for a living. <laughs> you're giving words of wisdom. So. Like, think about it in a higher, more philosophical uh, you know, perspective. What, what would you say? Yeah. You know, so what I would say, and, and I want to say I have my own regrets from undergrad if I had to do it again, but I would just say take the road not taken. You know what I mean? Travel the odd path. It's We have a tendency, I think, as undergrads at UVA to understand a certain way of being. Like, you know, we go to Bodo's, we go to drink beer here, we go, we have these traditions. 
And as much as I value tradition, don't let tradition define your experience so that you miss details, moments, opportunities that seem you know, sort of off the plan. Because I think that that's where the gem, gems are. That's where you learn and learn and discover more about yourself. And you get to test yourself in different kinds of environments, right? Because who needs, I mean, one of the things I see with these CEOs is that they have these echo chambers where people just affirm everything they say. Brilliant, John. Oh my goodness, Michael. Yes. Right. And so when I come, because, you know, they don't pay me to tell them, you know, tell them what they want to hear. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense for these three reasons. And this isn't going on. They're shocked. And the other piece I think about is the things that people just have blind spots in them. When I think about, say, product and the, and the, 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 the snafu they had of putting out items that were so clearly Black-based. And how people did that have to go through to get approval without anyone being able to make that comment, Right. So you don't know what you don't know until you get out of your echo chamber. And it won't be some sidebar nice to do. It'll be crucial for your greater success. That's awesome. Are you having flashbacks from any other stories or memories as you're walking around grounds? Yeah, I do. So they've done so much development here at UVA. There's so many new buildings and new things. And so... um, but yeah, like, you know, it's like I um, I go by all the time. There used to be the black bus stop. And um, and so, it, you know, the kids don't do that anymore. And I'm like, who are these people, right? Um, and so every time I go there, I feel like I should take a selfie and send it to friends and so forth. Um, but I'm on the lawn a lot. And I just have so many great memories of all of us hanging out on the lawn and drinking tuna and sitting there or playing Frisbee. Um and, you know, just the games, I went by the stadium the other day and I'm like, oh my God, I mean, way nicer situation than when we were sitting up on the hill, right, of uh, the Gold Coast. Um, so everything's dramatically improved and, you know, just thinking about, you know, how we navigated the world and how much better, but the corner is still so much the same, it feels. And the Biltmore is still there and the Verge. I had brunch at the Verge one day, which was awesome. But yeah, I mean, it's just, Super lovely um, to be here. I can't believe that I didn't hike Shenandoah more. You know, I'm like, I can't hike car the entire time. And I cannot believe that I wasn't like hiking Shenandoah like every other day, right? Because that's what I'm up to now. So it's a good, it's a good second chance. You know, you're like that New Yorker who lives in New York when they graduate and then they move out to the burbs and they realize they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they didn't go to this museum. And you say, gosh, I wish I had thought of that. And now and now you're getting to redo some of that stuff and just. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it, it is just awesome. And, it's, and you know, I'm, I'm literally right around the corner from blank, you know, a few minutes away from phlegm. And um, you talk about incarnate memories prevail. It has been just phenomenal. I mean, Blank and Flem and I stayed in touch the whole time anyway, as did, you know, Adam and Brian Grant and Tawny and Nicole and, you know, just a pile of people. But, um, you know, Ross really was on something when he pulled these calls back together. And being here reminds me, I will say that coming out of Chicago, where I was for so long and being in a certain kind of loop, you're looped in and you do so many things and you're on this scene, but it's entirely different than being with people who knew you when you were 18. And I feel like 
you know, no matter who I am, what I do, where I am in the world, these people will always accept me, welcome me, and have my back. And so there's just something dreamy, you know what I mean, about um, and being able to watch like, you know, Blank's girls grow up and um, and what they're up to and to meddle in their lives, you know what I mean? And so um, it's just all super fun. And I feel just tremendously blessed, um, you know, for this moment, for however long it lasts. I was having this conversation with someone and the beauty of 18 years old, the 18, 19, 20, when we were there is that there was no agenda, right? You were just hanging out with people to hang out for the sake of hanging out. There was no like thought of, oh, maybe if I hang out with this person, I'll get this piece of business or this door will open and I'll need to network. There was like no concept of that. And I think, you know, what I think what I would want someone to go back and tell me is just to enjoy that part of it too, that you're just being keeping it real, right? And the beauty of it now with our imp group is that's how we all became friends by just keeping it real. And so it just kind of, it just translates to a better relationship in our adulthood just because we knew everything about each other. You knew the good, you knew the bad, you had it all. And probably not a lot's changed in the fabric of that human being since. Exactly. That, I mean, that is so spot on. I, um, you know, I don't even know, and which is kind of interesting about this, I don't even know what anyone does. You know what I mean? Like, I only just found out what Smitty does, right? Like, of course, I know that Blank's an attorney, but you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really resonate. So I don't know if people make $100,000 a year, one million a year or 10 million a year like just like who's got the bourbon who brought the cups you know what i mean like are we hiking tomorrow i have no conception like if you said to me if, if i need anything just let you know so i am gonna like work on my serve with black right but that i'm like that's awesome well you know a unique space for us right so go ahead so I have the question that I like asking people. It's more just a fun question. And it's this. It's what is your favorite word with the letters I-M-P in it? Yeah. So I will say that, you know, I am just famous for saying impact. It's boring, but I'm famous for saying impact. I'm always thinking about sort of what are the outcomes. But also I think what are the unexpected outcomes? Because sometimes we do things that have unintentional impact. And we have to think about those as well. So I am going to be the boring professor with my answer. It's, it's you know, it's not going to be like impotence or anything. <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the day, I would have picked that word for you. And I mean it in a positive way because you and I have a lot of fun when we catch up. And so impact is really what you're doing. You've been doing it all along every step of the way, whether it's being a teacher. I mean, you've really been a teacher in almost every step of the way, whether you were formally given the label of teacher or professor, you've been doing it. So this is awesome. It, it has been so great catching up with you. Uh, I know this episode is going to get a ton of play because there's a lot of people who want to know what you're up to. I would just tell everybody that to make sure that you're spreading the news about this podcast. There's no uh, commercial intent to it. 
but I don't have all the email addresses or know the people. And eventually what I'd like to do is to expand our viewership or listenership, it's probably, where we're inviting people who are younger than we were that we didn't know and people that were older, Tony, than you and I that we didn't know to make them be a part of that. So anyone listening to this, forward it to your friends, make sure that they ping me an email and say, hey, can you add me to the list? And also, if you're listening and you will grant me an interview, as opposed to making me have to come knock on your door, that would be awesome. And as all of these are, please rate it five stars. I don't know why someone just told me to do that. I can't imagine that this podcast is going to go outside of our relatively small imp circle, but rate it five because if, we, if the Zoomers have one, we're going to rate them one. So let's get all of our fives on the board. You know, the Zoomers aren't that creative. <laughs> That's a great thing to end on. I love it. A Zoomer dig. Tony, the doctor. Tony Irving, thanks for joining us. It was great seeing you today. Thanks for having me, man. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's total sense. C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.